David and Goliath. great study break. Um, had a chance, Marsha and I had a chance to study the Reformation, actually visited some of the places, taught on it, uh, read and finished reading about half a dozen books, and uh, laid out for the next 11 months uh, the sermons that we're going to be, and, and the, the pattern we're going to be looking at God's Word in. So we're going to do a series on courageous, what it means to be courageous. In October, we're going to do a series on spiritual warfare. In November, we're going to uh, do a little bit of uh, Mr. Rogers. Um, it, what was his famous tagline? Won't you be my neighbor? Jesus talks about that. What does that mean for us? Christmas, we're going to talk about lights. More about that later. From January through Easter, we're going to be taking a journey in three different parts through the Gospel of Mark. And then we do something... Um, a little bit radical and different. I've never done it before. I've always wanted to. I've made up my mind I'm going to do it. Uh, after Easter and throughout the summer, we're going to do a series on the tabernacle in the Old Testament. The Bible says a lot, Old and New Testament, about the tabernacle. It's a picture of the tabernacle in heaven, and it is, it is the key to understanding what it means to encounter, have intimacy with God. And we're working on a very special experience that may go with that. So I think it's going to be an exciting year. And so that's what I've been up to. In case you were worried, I was out lounging around on a beach someplace. All right? <clears throat> now, we're going to talk about courage. That's simply the whole series in one word. And I really love the <clears throat> little graphic that I found for this. Um, it just, I looked at it and I laughed and I contemplated and it spoke so much because, you know, on the surface, with all the news of shark attacks, it's intimidating, it's menacing, it's scary. But if you get your head below the surface and you see this little goldfish with this thing strapped on, you laugh and you just go, oh my goodness, I'm not afraid of that. Just a little goldfish trying to look mean and menacing. I want to suggest to you that most of the fears that we face in our lives are like that little goldfish with the shark fin on the top. They look menacing, but in reality, it's just an illusion. And we really shouldn't be afraid. Say, can you prove that? I think I can. I want you to take a journey with me back in time to a very, very familiar scene even people who don't go to church know about this story, and that's the problem. The more familiar, familiar you are with a story, especially a biblical story, you tend to think you know what it means already, when the reality is that familiarity may be keeping you from seeing the true meaning of that story. So I beg you, don't just think, oh, I've heard that before. The background is two hillsides with a valley in between. I stood on those hillsides, I stood in that valley, so is my wife and some of you. On one hilltop are the Philistines, and that's the right way to pronounce it. On the other hilltop are the Israelites, and in between is the Valley of Elah, the Valley of Elah. 
Neither one of the armies who hate each other wants to give up their strategic position. You always have an advantage when your enemy's coming uphill towards you. You're never at an advantage when you're the one going uphill. And so nobody wants to make a move. And then the Philistines unleashed their secret weapon, an ancient strategy. Why don't you turn to 1 Samuel chapter 17 with me for a moment. <clears throat> I'm going to be <clears throat> reading out of the New Living Translation. I chose to use that this weekend because it does a far better job giving us literal meanings of words. And I don't have to stop every sentence and explain what it means when something weighed, you know, a certain hundred shekels or whatever it is. This just puts it there for us. But if you use another version, you can follow along. First Samuel chapter 17, verse 4. Then Goliath, a Philistine champion from Gath, came out of the Philistine ranks to face the forces of Israel. He was over nine feet tall. He wore a bronze helmet. His bronze coat of mail weighed 125 pounds. He also wore bronze leg armor, and he carried a bronze javelin on his shoulder. The shaft of his spear was as heavy and thick as a weaver's beam, tipped with an iron spearhead that weighed 15 pounds. His armor bearer walked ahead of him, carrying a shield. Goliath stood and shouted a taunt across the Israelites. Why are you all coming out to fight? He called. I am the Philistine champion, but you are only the servants of Saul. Choose one man to come down here and fight me. If he kills me, then we will be your slaves. But if I kill him, you will be our slaves. I defy the armies of Israel today. Send me a man who will fight me. When Saul and the Israelites heard this, they were terrified. They were deeply shaken. That's what the Hebrew literally means there. Imagine that. God's army, God's people, terrified and deeply shaken. And I would have been too, wouldn't you? See, what Goliath does is he challenges them to an ancient form of combat called single combat. Sometimes in the ancient world, Rome did this, others did this. When you knew you were going to suffer mass casualties, sometimes, not always, but sometimes, each army would send out its greatest champion and the agreement was that they would fight a duel to the death. Winner takes all. Didn't happen often, but it happened. Well, any Israelite would look at this situation and go, there's no way, there's no way anybody is going to defeat that orc of a beast standing over there, nine feet tall, this man of, uh, of war, this veteran, this is no chance. This is insurmountable. This is an obstacle that none of us can ever get past. And it was very hopeless. And I can understand that. All of us, at some point in our lives, will face insurmountable odds. You can live a good life, a perfect life, a healthy life. You're going to die someday, and you can't get around that. So at some point, all of us, and perhaps some of you right now, are facing or will face at least for a while something that seems insurmountable. You cannot overcome it. How many of you have kids starting school? Uh, aren't they excited? They're not, but you are, right, parents? 
know, it might be the bully for your child that seems like an insurmountable giant. Bully on the playground, bully in the classroom, that bigger than normal kid, girl, boy, whoever it is, that's so intimidating. Or it may be the bully that grew up and became your neighbor. Or the bully who's become your boss. And you're just like, I don't know what to do with this person. I don't know how to get, I don't know how to deal with her. I don't know how to deal with him. I've tried everything. Or it might be cancer. Or it might be a chronic illness that you have to live with. Or maybe a mental illness. And you've thrown everything you can at it. And it just is insurmountable. No medication, no chemo is, is, is there to cure it. You're just overwhelmed by it. Or you have to wake up every day and face that pain. Seems insurmountable. Or it might be a, a, a money pit that you're trying to dig out of and the harder you try to dig out of it, seems like the, the further you dig into it. Or maybe it's failure. It's something you've confessed, you've asked forgiveness for over and over again, but like a, like a chain and ball shackled to your ankle, everywhere you go, it just seems to follow you around. The guilt and the shame will it ever be over this. Or maybe it's the hurt and the pain of being a victim of somebody else's sin abuse or whatever it is that you suffered that you carry with you. We all have these giants. I thought I'd tell you about one of my giants, and I'm going to go all the way back to ninth grade. That feels pretty safe. And I want to tell you about a, a man. He was my phys ed teacher, and I'm going to call him Mr. W. Mr. W, at that point in my life, was the biggest, tallest man I had ever seen. He stood about six feet, eight inches tall, and when he would stand in the gym, palming a basketball and raise it above his head, it was like he was going to touch the ceiling. The guy was intimidating, and he was kind of mean. Or a big old Fu Manchu. Actually, he reminds me of this guy. You've probably seen a picture of Hulk Hogan before. Except I, Mr. W was meaner than that and didn't wear a bandana because he had a full head of hair. And that guy, Mr. W, did not like me and a couple other kids in the class, not because we were troublemakers, but because we were, back in the day, I know it's not politically correct, we were considered sissies. And he believed that the way you dealt with sissies was you intimidated them, you put them down, you taunted them, you made fun of them, make a man out of them. If he did now what he did then, he'd be fired in a second. Those are different times. That's back in the day, remember if you were in phys ed, where you had to wear those little red shorts, remember that, and they had a number on them? And you had to bring your own little white t-shirt well, my mom said I was husky back in those days, which is just, a, I guess, kind of a parent's political correct way of saying a little overweight. So everything fit real snug, and I was not very coordinated, not very athletic at all at that point in my life, and, and I was very shy. I have many incidences, but I'll tell you one, where I had missed a bunch of layups in a basketball drill, just could not get the thing to go. Exasperated with me, he looked at me and he said, Hummel, did any of your mother's children ever live? And I thought to myself, I think he just insulted me. Did he insult me? Did he insult my mother? It really bothered me until later on I figured out he didn't insult my mom, he just insulted me. He, in other words, what he was saying is, you're a non-entity, you're so pathetic, I don't think he even had a mother. And I grew to hate that man. And that year of school I thought would never end. It was just one thing after another. You know, it doesn't matter whether you're 14, 45, or 90. We all have those situations. We all have those people at some point in our lives. And I have a question for you. 
Are they real or is it really an illusion? Now, don't misunderstand me when I say that. Mr. W was concrete real. He was not an illusion. And the giant that you have, the obstacle you have in your life is very real and very concrete. I'm not saying it's a figment of your imagination. What I am questioning, though, is your attitude, if you have it, that it's insurmountable. That you cannot overcome it. That's the illusion. That's the illusion. Say, what do you mean by that? Well, let's take a journey a few miles away from the battle scene to a little town called Bethlehem. Sounds like a song, doesn't it? It's an old shepherd that lives there. His name is Jesse. And uh, Jesse has a couple of his sons out fighting the battle with Saul. But his youngest son, David, is still at home. David's probably a teenager, and he calls him and he said, David, I want you to go to the battlefront. I want you to see how the battle is going, which is a little bit of humor in the scriptures because there's no battle going on. Take some of these gifts, give them to the commanders, give these things to your, your brothers and come back and give me a report. And so we pick up the story if you want to join me in verse 20. So David left the sheep with another shepherd and set out early the next morning with the gifts as Jesse had directed him. He arrived at the camp just as the Israelite army was leading for the battlefield with shouts and battle cries. It's kind of humorous, isn't it? They've been doing this for days. Soon the Israelites and Philistine forces stood facing each other, army against army. David left his things with the keeper of supplies and hurried out to the ranks to greet his brothers. As he was talking with them, Goliath, the Philistine champion from Gath, came out from the Philistine ranks. Then David heard him shout his usual, so this has been going on for a while, taunt the army of Israel. As soon as the Israelite army saw him, they began to run away in fright. Have you seen the giant, they asked. He comes out each day to defy Israel. Now come down, if you will, toward the end of verse 26. David says, or asks, who is this pagan Philistine anyway? that he is allowed to defy the armies of the living God. Now, I find a couple of things really interesting there. When Saul and the Israelites, when they see Goliath, they're totally consumed with the giant. They're fixated on him. Listen, here's what they say. Have you seen the giant? You see how big he is. You see how hairy he is. You see, you see how ugly he is. You see how powerful he is. And none of us can face him. But when David sees the giant, look at his response. He says, who is this pagan, pagan Philistine anyway that is allowed, in other words, you're allowing this to happen, to defy the armies of the living God? Like David looks past Goliath. They look at Goliath and their eyes stop. David looks through Goliath. When you face those obstacles in your life, do your eyes stop with the obstacle or do you look through it? I, I struggle to look through it. And by the way, this is the first time that God is mentioned in the story. Which is kind of interesting, but there's a good explanation for it, I think. And that's because Saul and God are not on speaking terms with each other. If you know the context of the story, you realize that Saul has disobeyed, rebelled against God, and God's rejected him. 
You know, on paper, if you look at the life of David and the life of Saul, David in many ways was a far worse sinner in the sense of the things he did. But the difference between a David and a Saul was David could admit and repent. Saul never repented. It was always somebody else's fault, even God's. And so Saul was left to face the giant by his own devices because of his attitude. And it was by his heart. Meanwhile, David is talking all about God, the living God, and victory, and how victory can be had, and on and on he goes with it until finally, as you can read it later, his older brother Eliab tells him to shut up and go home. That's not like a big brother. You're just here to see the blood and the gore of battle. What blood? What gore? You guys just stand and face each other every day. Word makes it to Saul. There's a man named David in the camp that's, that's ready to go out and fight this giant. And I'm sure at that point Saul felt probably a little relieved. Finally, finally, there's, we've got a champion. I wonder who he is. I wonder how big he is. I wonder how strong he is. I wonder how experienced he is. I can't imagine how disappointed Saul was when David came walking through the tent. At least that's how I see it in my imagination. Verse 32 comes in, chattering away. Said, don't worry about the Philistine. David told Saul, I'll go fight him. You know, I think Saul's jaw dropped open, his heart sunk into his stomach. Because don't be ridiculous, verse 33. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war ever since his youth. Now, how could David have responded to this? You know, one of the ways he could have responded to it was to just simply drop his shoulders, hang his head, kick a little dirt as he walked out of the tent, and maybe mutter something like, I'm tired of being treated like a kid. But David doesn't do that. The text tells us that David persisted in verse 34. It says, I've been taking care of my father's sheep and goats, he said. When a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb for the flock, I go after it with a club and I rescue a lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it again to this pagan Philistine too, for he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine as well. All right. Go ahead, he said. May the Lord be with you. First time he invokes the name of the Lord. Now, I want to look at a couple of verses with you again. Remember David said, a lion or a bear comes to steal a lamb from the flock. I go after it with a club and what? Rescue the lamb from its mouth, and if the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and club it to death. Then he goes on and he says, the Lord who, what? Here we go again. Rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will, third time, rescue me from the Philistine. And when he's standing in front of Goliath, David says these words. He says, the Lord rescues his people. There's that word rescue again, fourth time, but not with sword and spear. So in other words, what David is saying is, God rescues I've experienced him rescuing me when I've tried to rescue a sheep. He rescued me. And when he looks at the giant, he says, God's not going to deliver us by sword and spirit. He's going to rescue me, us, from you. So David's convinced that God is a rescuing God when we're facing the most difficult obstacles in our lives. Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's a rescuing God? 
Saul finally just says, all right, I don't have anybody else. You go out there and fight him. And Saul dresses him in his armor, which is kind of a clue to us that Saul's expectations that David is going to go out and fight a conventional battle. See, what Saul and the armies of Israel did and what we oftentimes do is we allow the obstacles in our life, the enemy in our life, to define the terms of engagement. We think that the only way to defeat the enemy is to fight a conventional battle. Malcolm Gladstone wrote a book years ago called David and Goliath. I've read that he came back to faith writing that book. It's really, it's, it's a story about David and Goliath, but he takes it and applies it in some great leadership lessons. His, the whole point is David defeated Goliath in an unconventional way, and then he gives stories about people who have overcome obstacles using unconventional means. It's all very interesting, but I want to bring it back to, to the theology of, of this story. Because David shakes off that armor. He says, I can't do this. Now, I'm paraphrasing. I'm interpreting here. I can't do this. I can't fight him his way. The way giants and soldiers always fight each other. The only way I'm going to take this, guys, I got to do it unconventionally. I got to do it the way I know how to do it. The way God made me. So he shreds all the armor. And he picks up his shepherd's staff, this stick, he takes his pouch, and he goes out and he picks up five smooth Nerf balls, I mean stones. I don't hurt anybody. And a slingshot. And he goes out to meet the giant. Now when Goliath sees him coming, Goliath is not very happy about it. It says in verse 41 that Goliath walked down toward David with his shield bearer ahead of him, sneering in contempt at this ruddy-faced boy. He says, am I a dog? He roared at David that you come at me with a stick, probably referring to that little shepherd's staff that he has in his hand. And he cursed David by the names of his gods. Then he says, come over here. In other words, when when, uh, Goliath says, come over here, he's saying, Engage me in conventional warfare. Let's fight this out like we always fight out as two men. Hand-to-hand combat using our sword and our spear. And he says, I'll give your flesh to birds and wild animals. And Goliath is absolutely right. If David steps into that circle with Goliath and takes him on in conventional warfare, David is a dead man. That's not how God wired David. Verse 45. David replied to Philistine, you come to me with sword, spear, javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of heaven's armies, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you had defied. Today the Lord will conquer you, and I will kill you and cut your head off your head, and I'll give you, then I'll give the dead bodies of your men to the birds and wild animals, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. And everyone assembled here will know that the Lord, here he goes again, rescues his people, but not with sword and spear. The Lord is the Lord. This is the Lord's battle, and he will give you to us. <clears throat> David takes his sling, all right, and he puts a stone in it. And he comes running at Goliath. 
And when that happens, Goliath had to be a little bit worried because a slingshot in the hands of an expert and ballistic experts tell us this, that stone can lead that slingshot at 75 miles an hour. And an expert is a dead aim with it. Before Goliath knows what he is doing, before he understands what's happening to him, David lets go of his sling. And that would not have killed a giant. <laughs> but I didn't want to hurt anybody here. And that stone goes flying out and kills the giant. And that day, God used a weak boy, inexperienced, to defeat an experienced giant of a man that day. When David won his victory, it was not just David's victory. It was all of Israel's victory. Everybody became victorious. His victory was imputed to everybody else. And that day, God used David to fight an unconventional battle and beat Goliath. You say, Pastor, that's an interesting story. Told a little bit differently. Sorry your ball fell out. Didn't go out like you hoped it would, but. I'm facing some obstacles, some big giants in my life. How on earth does that story apply to me? Oh, it applies big time to you and me. And this is where we oftentimes miss the meaning of the story. See, this story is not just a story about David versus Goliath. It's interesting. And it's about, you know, how to have courage and have better faith. You can draw some great principles out of that story that way, but this story is ultimately about another David. This story prefigures Christ. It points to Christ. Christ, who's called the son of David, who takes on the flesh of David's lineage, comes to earth. He comes from Bethlehem. He comes as weak, unimpressive to everybody. And he comes to face a giant that nobody's been able to defeat. And a giant is called sin and death, truly insurmountable. And everybody wants him to take on sin and death, but they want him to take it on in a conventional way, and he knows that if he does, he will lose the battle. Satan himself, in Matthew chapter 4, wilderness temptation, tries to get Jesus to deal with it in a different way, says to him, turn the stone into bread, jump off the pinnacle of the temple, the angels will rescue, become a celebrity, bow to me, I'll give you the kingdoms of the earth. You don't have to go through suffering and death. Just bow to me and you'll be good. And Jesus says, no. If I do that, I will not win the battle. John chapter 6, another passage is the scripture. The people try to make him king. Keep making the stone into bread for us. Keep multiplying the fish and loaves for us. Cure us of our diseases. Deliver us from demons. Conquer the Romans and we'll make you our king. And Jesus says, no. If I do that, I'll lose the battle. The religious leaders, if they could have had their way, would have asked Jesus to be one of them. To be like them, one who commentates on the law and the traditions about the law, one who upholds Moses, one who is towering over all the other sinful people, judging them, pointing their sins out. But Jesus said, no. And instead, what God does is God takes a slingshot called a human body 
conceived in the womb of a young girl named Mary. And God seats his son in that human flesh. And God slings his son at the cross. And there on the cross, Jesus defeats death and sin. What appears to be weakness to men is the strength and the power of God. And three days later, he rises from the dead victorious. And he imputes that victory to every follower of his. Therefore, I don't have to fear the giants that I face in my life. Why? Because before my giant ever shows up, I'm already victorious in Christ. The question is, do you have the faith to believe that? So how does that practically work? Well, I tell you what, when I was a freshman, I wish I had had a spiritual mentor in my life. A Cal Robinson or a Brian Schulenberg or some spiritual young man that I could relate to to some degree in my life. Who would have said to me, Dale, look past, look past Mr. W. Can't you see God? God loves you. God cares about you. You matter to God no matter who you are, what size you are, how many freckles are on your face, how straight or crooked your teeth. None of that matters. You, you mean so much to God. And have them put their arm around me when they tell me that so I feel some God with skin on. And then I wish they had said to me, and here's what I want you to do. The next time he makes fun of you, I just want you to look at him, smile, and say, Mr. W, I'm praying for you. Man, I wish I had done that. It would have, I, I think it would have totally intimidated him. The next time failure stares you in the face, you got to look past failure and understand that when Jesus died for you on the cross, it was to die for every sin in your life and that old things have passed away. Behold, all things become new. That he takes our sins and he throws them as far as the east is from the west and remembers them no more and claim that victory no matter what your mind tells you, no matter what your emotions tell you. Don't believe everything that goes through your mind. Live in that victory. Well, the next time you're facing death or the threats of death, you've hurled everything you can at it. Look past death and understand that Christ has made a way. Oh, death wears your string, your sting. You know, grave wears your victory. If I have to die, I am going home to be with the Lord. Bags are packed, ready to go. Or the next time you're facing chronic suffering, Count it a privilege that through this suffering, this thorn in your flesh, it makes you actually stronger because it forces you to depend on God in ways you wouldn't otherwise. Now, I understand it's easy for me to stand up here and say that if you're going through it. But I'm telling you what, listen, if, if we can't do this, if, if, if what I'm saying isn't true and we can't do it, we're the most hopeless bunch on earth. And on Labor Day weekend, what on earth are we doing here? Is he God or is he not? Is he living? Is he not? Is he victorious? Is he not? See, behind every giant is a victory. And we claim that victory. We gain courage. 
no matter what we face. During the deepest, darkest days of apartheid in South Africa, a political rally was going to be held and the government of that day squashed it. And so Archbishop Desmond Tutu decided they would hold a worship service at St. Catherine's Church in Cape Town, South Africa instead. People gathered in the worship center and soon hundreds of police officers filed their way in to intimidate the worshipers and to intimidate the archbishop. They began recording the things that he was saying to be used against him. And finally, at one point in his message, he stopped and he addressed the officers and he said this. He said, you are powerful people. You are very powerful people, but you are not God's. And my God will not be mocked. So since you've lost, and he repeated again, so since you've lost, I invite you to join us and be on the winning side. And all of a sudden, the congregation erupted in song and in dance and in worship. And the police officers didn't know what to do. They found themselves totally Intimidated. The intimidators were now being intimidated. Why? Because of the courage of a preacher who believed that God had already won the victory and that evil had been and would be conquered. What do you believe? Let's pray. Father in heaven, all of us face giants from our past, our present, or maybe, Lord, it'll be a giant we encounter tomorrow. Father God, you call us to deal with them as best as we can, to use wisdom, to seek help. But Father, sometimes after doing everything we can, that giant is still there. And we must re- Resolve to use unconventional methods. We praise you and thank you for the holy unconventionality of Jesus Christ, who's already won the victory for us. We thank you, Father, that this life is fleeting. Soon we'll be with you. So, whatever giant we're facing, Lord, we pray for grace, we pray for strength to see past it. to lay hold of Christ, who laid hold of us, who hurled himself against sin and death to set us free. May Christ become our all-consuming passion. For in him and through him is the victory. In Jesus' name, amen.